volunteer to preach as well. Before I get into sort of the meat of uh, what I'm talking about today, I want to just add a few sort of uh, provisos. Uh, maybe that's God saying it's not your turn, Greg. <laughs> um, a lot of the songs we, we, we have sung today and a lot of what I'm going to talk about really emphasizes salvation as healing. Um, and I'm conscious that in a lot of modern preaching, especially in very mainline evangelical churches, there's this tendency towards what uh, uh, theologians are calling moralistic therapeutic deism. And, and, and so that is, we go to church to get a message that helps us feel good about ourselves. Um, and, and when you emphasize uh, salvation as healing, you run that risk. And so I want to affirm for you now that I still do, I am still uh, putting this message within the context of the saving work of Christ who died for our sins, who descended into Hades, who vanquished the power of death and the devil, who rose from the grave, who brought captives out of Hades, who walked the earth, who ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling from on high. So that's, that's where I'm coming from. Um, I'm also going to tell you that um, I really appreciated Dan's sermon last week. It was a little more uh, what we call personal or existential in nature, and I'm continuing on in that train. I even copied his first two words of his sermon, encountering Jesus, hearing his voice and story. And I will explain this piece of artwork that is up there. Uh, actually, it, it hangs in our living room. Um, it's a very special piece of artwork for me. Um, the two verses from John chapter 10 that I, I sort of wanted to key in on is the sheep hear his voice. He, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And then the final verse of that passage, which is, I came that they may have life and have it to the full. Because what I realized as there were two issues I was grappling with in my life that they needed to be integrated. And this integration is, is really a gift from God, and it helps me, and I'm hoping that as I share my, um, my heart with you, that it will help you as well. Today, I'm going to be talking about good stories and what makes a good story. Um, growing up as a Baptist, of course, you might have noticed that some of the songs we sing seem to have a little more of that Baptist flavor to them. Um, and one of the ones that I sang many times as a child was, I love to tell the story. Um, perhaps some of you are familiar with it, uh, I'll, I'll read the first verse and refrain for you. I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story because I know it's true. It satisfies my longings as nothing else can do. I love to tell the story. It will be my theme and glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. And I think what... I've been sort of inhabiting a sphere on the internet that is more emphasizing the telling of stories and the telling of good stories. And it really is important, the type of stories that we sort of take into ourselves because they can really affect us in ways we might not even realize. Um, I'm gonna share a bit, oh, maybe I should have my books up here. Um, there's actually uh, an Orthodox theologian who writes about children's literature. His name is Vigan Goroyan. Um, just the second edition of his book just came out, Tending the Heart of Virtue, and it really talks about how fairy tales uh, are good in the moral development of children. Um, 
And so I'd just like to read, I'm gonna read a lot of stories today and I'm hoping you'll enjoy stories. Um, if not, my apologies. Um, try, to, try to plug along with me. Um, he writes, Flannery O'Connor, that marvelously gifted American writer of the past century, spoke a simple though profound truth when she said, a story is a way to say something that can't be said any other way. You tell a story because a statement would be inadequate. The great fairy tales and fantasy stories communicate meaning of morality through vivid depictions of the struggle between good and evil, where characters must make difficult choices between right and wrong, or heroes and villains contest the very fate of imaginary worlds. Not didacticism, but rather the narrative. The dramatic action makes the fairy tale meaningful. Narrative supplies the imagination with important symbolic information about the shape of our world and appropriate responses to, it, to its inhabitants. And really, I, I think if, you're, if you like to read stories, and I must admit, I'm not a great reader of stories. I, I tend to dwell more in the realm of theology books. Um, the ones that are really good stories are the ones whose lesson is subtle, not the ones that beat you over the head. Um, I don't know if you watch any modern TV or go to movies, but sometimes it's pretty easy to tell what the message is because they lack all sense of subtlety. Um, um, so within my own life, and I just, this is actually something that occurred to me within the last week um, as a point of integration. There are two tendencies within my own spirit, my own soul that um, have been wrestling for probably most of my life. And one of them is overcoming pride. And I always think of the line from John the Baptist where he says about Christ, he must increase, but I must decrease. So that's one tendency, overcoming pride. Um, because you know what? Every one of us likes to be the hero of our own story. And sometimes we have to remember that we aren't actually the main focus in the story of our own life. But the other side of it is almost, seems like it's almost opposite and it's knowing your value. Um, and again, I'll quote again from Jesus are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. And so we have this tension within our lives of not being too full of ourselves, dare I say the word humility, um, and this other tension of wanting to be known by God and wanting to know his love and his healing presence. And this is the struggle that, at least in my life, maybe it's not in yours, maybe you're completely integrated in everything. Um, this, is, this is the struggle that I, I think I've been finally been able to label. And sometimes labeling the struggle is, is sort of the push you need to get over it. Um, a part of it is, you know, the, the knowing your, your own value is, uh, the issues I've had have always been, from, right from my childhood, is censoring myself because I, I knew I, my emotions would usually get the best of me and I would say stupid things, mean things, I would lash out physically and, and sometimes it was only because I wasn't being understood. And, um, you know, and I, I never really want to trash my parents but my dad used to call me his little thundercloud um, or less complimentary was you must be from a different planet. Um, so, so, you know, those things that are said in joke to our children sometimes really do stay with us for quite a while. Um, 
So I want to read you one story. Um, some of you might view it as more historical. Some of you might see it completely as fiction because it's the life of a saint. You can go to the next slide, Scott, thanks. Saint Euphrosinos the cook. Um, this is the icon for this gentleman. He, he lived, I think, in the fifth century. I'd like to read you his story. It's, um, and you'll see he's a, a, he's a saint in the church that I've, I've been very drawn towards. Um, our holy father, Euphrosinus the cook, was born into a peasant family and had no schooling, but he was truly devout and faithful. As an adult, he became a cook and was able to save money out of his expenses by depriving himself, but only for the sake of almsgiving. His position as a cook permitted him to eat the best food first, but he never took advantage of this privilege. He ate his greens and olives gratefully, while the most appetizing meats and most tantalizing fish were cooking before him. Later, Euphrosinus went to a monastery where his obedience was to work in the kitchen as a cook. In contrast to the meals that he used to prepare in secular hotels, he made very plain food in the monastery. To those who complained and mocked him, he meekly replied, good cooking is not useful for attaining the kingdom of heaven. I think Montrealers might disagree with him on that, but um, the more the body craves pleasure, the more the soul will lose that which it truly needs. It is not my intention to punish you. Some of the monks scorned him because of his coarse rustic background, but he endured their contempt in silence and was not disturbed by it. Saint Euphrosinus strove to please the Lord by his virtuous life, which he concealed from others. But the Lord himself revealed to the monastic brethren just what spiritual heights their cook had attained. In the same monastery, there was a devout priest who prayed that he might know what good things are prepared for those who love God. One night as he was sleeping, he found himself in a beautiful garden where to his astonishment, he beheld the most wondrous things. Then he saw Father Euphrosinos, the monastery cook, standing in the garden and partaking of the good things of that place. As he approached the cook, he asked to whom the garden belonged and how he came to be there. Saint Euphrosinos replied, this garden is reserved for God's elect and by his great goodness, I also dwell here. Then the priest asked him what he did in the garden, and the saint said, I have authority over all the things you see here. I rejoice and am filled with gladness and the spiritual enjoyment of them. The priest questioned him again, can you give me something of these good things? Certainly, he replied, by God's grace, take whatever you wish. Pointing to some apples, he inquired if he might have some of them. Taking a few of the apples, the saint placed them in the priest's outer garment, saying, receive that which you requested and may you delight in them at that moment the samantran was heard summoning the fathers to the midnight service when the priest awakened he thought that his vision was just a dream but when he reached for his outer garment he found the apples which the cook had given him and he could still smell their wonderful fragrance he got out of bed and then hurried to church and there he saw euphrosinus and asked him where he had been that night the saint said, forgive me, Father, I have not been anywhere tonight. I have just come to church or the service. The priest urged him to tell the truth so that God's glory might be made manifest. The humble Euphrosinus told him, I was in the place where the good things are, which those who love God shall inherit, and which for many years you wished to behold. There you saw me enjoying the blessings of that garden. 
for God had deigned to reveal to you the blessings of the just. He has performed this miracle through me, the lowly one. Father, what did you give me from that garden? He replied, the delightful and most fragrant apples which you just put on your bed. Forgive me, Father, for I am a worm and not a man. When the service of matins was over, the priest told the brethren about his vision and showed them the apples. They noticed the ineffable fragrance with spiritual joy, marveling at what the priest had told them. Rushing into the kitchen, they found the saint had already left the monastery, fleeing from the glory of men, and he could not be found. The brethren shared the apples amongst themselves and as a blessing gave pieces to those who visited the monastery, especially for those in need of healing. For those who ate the apples were cured of their ailments. Many received benefit from the gift of St. Euphrosinus. On account of this vision was written, not only on paper, but also in their hearts. And what has really drawn me towards the story of, of this particular saint, who is actually not a very well-known one, is, is really, not really the miraculous, but his response to notoriety, he fled. He didn't, didn't stay around to, to uh, be tempted, I guess, as you'd say, by the adulation of the crowds. He, he, went to fight, he, went, he went away to avoid that. And in some ways, I think, um, I always used to jo we always used to joke when I, was, when, when I was in the clergy back in Nova Scotia that uh, clergy tend to be some of the most narcissistic people around. We love to be the center of attention. And, and we also have strong codependent tendencies. Um, and, and so the story of the saint has, has, came along in, into my life to remind me to flee from notoriety. And, and I know that some of you have been on my case to preach for a while. And, and, and part of the reason why I have withheld from this was when I didn't really feel I had a message to share. And the other was I, I didn't want to get myself into the trap of this. But fortunately, after you hear this sermon, you won't want to hear me preach again. <laughs> So I also no, I want to share with you a different story, and this one is completely made up. I I I I, I warn you, um, but it's a beautiful story. Um, it comes from a book by Michael Card, who is a Christian recording artist you might have heard of. Uh, he, he's done done a lot of um, sort of biblically based uh, albums, and one of them was uh, uh, on the life of Christ. And he had a song called "The Gentle Healer." So he wrote a story that sort of went along with this book uh, with this song. Um, and I always ch get choked up when I read it, so sorry about that. Um, when we read the Gospels, we sometimes lose sight of the ordinary people whose lives were impacted when they met Jesus. This is a fictional story based on a fictional song. Who would have ever believed that someone like him would come to a sleepy little town in Bethsaida? Don't misunderstand me. I love my town and the hills and the Sea of Tiberias. I, it has always been my home, and always will be, I hope. My father gave his name to me, Yoshub, though that is not what I am called by most in town. Slow one, they call out across the street, Raka, or stupid. I don't really mind. The creator, blessed be he, must have wanted me this way, and I think I must still be a happier man than most. Since my parents' death, I make my living by helping out around the village. The carpenter, Nathan, lets me clean out his shop sometimes and sleep there when the weather's bad. The fishermen allow me to help them with their nets and sometimes give me of their catch to eat. That is how I met Philip, one of the followers of the rabbi from Nazareth. 
He was a fisherman, basically a kind man, although not one you would expect to find following a religious teacher. Like the other fishermen, he could be rough in his talk and his ways, although once he did rebuke some of the others for speaking cruelly to me, though I never thanked him for it. When he left to follow Jesus, I rarely saw him in town except when the teacher himself would come. The first time I ever saw Jesus, I was rounding the corner on my way into Nathan's shop and almost knocked the rabbi down. He was leaning in the doorway watching Nathan at work on a plow handle and giving him advice on how to better shape the wood. I suppose it was my own clumsy fault. He looked at me not with anger or surprise, but with a sort of gentle familiarity, as if he knew me. My father used to look at me like that when boys would make me cry with their taunts. Forgive me, Rabbi, I said. You're Yoshub, said he. Yes, Master, I replied, though I am called by other names in this town. I understand, Jesus said kindly. Some call me by other names as well. He would have continued talking with me, but I broke away out of embarrassment. Later, I thought the better of it and went back, hoping to see him. But he and his disciples had already left. The next time I saw him was many months later. I must confess he had not entered my mind since that day at the carpenter's shop. The fishing had been slow for days, so I knew there would be no work for me at the shore and also no food. It was a beautiful sunny day, and since the village seemed to be deserted, I went up into the mountains to wander alone, to look out over the sea and to be by myself with no one to make fun of me. As I approached the top of a small ridge, I heard the murmuring of a crowd. I topped the hill and saw the next valley filled with people. There were thousands. They covered the hillside, men, women, children, all sitting, straining to hear someone who was speaking from the middle of the throng. Although I could not get close enough to see, I knew it must be him, Jesus. I pressed in as close as I could and tried my best to listen. Though I could make out his words, words never meant all that much to me. I am so dull. And besides, this time my stomach was churning, aching of emptiness. Just as I was dozing off, I heard a baroka being pronounced for the meal. Needless to say, this roused me quickly. Blessed be thou, eternal creator of the universe, who makes bread come forth from the earth. It was the teacher giving the blessing over a handful of fish and bread. I thought to myself that he and his disciples were about to have their noon meal, but there was hardly enough food there even for them. He placed the fish and the bread into some baskets, and the disciples were holding, and to everyone's amazement, told them to give the crowd something to eat. What a nice but hopeless gesture, I thought to myself. Perhaps this will cause the others to share. A group close by, some of the same men who used to taunt me as a boy, now taunted Jesus for this foolishness. Yes, they mocked. We would all like our lunch baskets filled, if you please. It was my acquaintance, Philip, who obliged them. Give me your baskets, he said, and proceeded to scoop them full of food. The men, for once, were speechless. Those who were close to Jesus knew at once of the miracle. The ones at the back of the crowd only thought some wealthy person had generously provided food, but there were no wealthy people there that day. I ate my fill and laid back on the grass, listening to the voice of the rabbi. It was an ordinary voice, but full of kindness. It lulled me to sleep. See, even Jesus couldn't keep them awake. When I awoke, everyone, including the teacher, was gone. I was a, it was a year or more before I saw him again. It was the last time. He had been much on my mind since that day in the mountains, when all the crowds was fed. Since then, every time I broke bread, I thought of him 
and that day in the sunshine. When I helped the fishermen take their catch from the nets, I remembered Jesus, who needed no nets, calm and smiling in the midst of the hungry crowd. I tried to remember his words of that day, but all I could recall was him and what he had done. What he did meant, what he did meant more than words. It was a cool spring evening. I remember the season because Passover was near. He came quietly into town. No one was even aware of his presence. I only knew because I saw Philip coming from his father's house. From that I understood that the teacher must be in town. Philip greeted <clears throat> I'm going to lose it again. Okay. Philip greeted me with great kindness. He remembered my name and asked how I was faring and if the men still made fun of me. He had, <clears throat> he had changed over the years since I had known him. He was he was now more like the rabbi he followed. Yet he was nervous and kept looking over his shoulder into the shadows as if he expected to find someone lurking there. I don't remember what I said to him. I only asked where the rabbi was staying. He told me it was to be kept a secret, but he knew I could be trusted. The rabbi was staying at Nathan's shop for the night. I thought it strange that he should be staying there and not in Nathan's home, as was his custom. But I asked no questions, as Philip was already heading off into the night in that direction. I followed Philip to the place he entered with a whisper at the door. In the dim light of a single candle, I saw only Jesus and his disciple. They looked surprised to see me, a stranger, all of a sudden in their midst. It's all right, Philip said to calm them. This is Yoshev. He is a friend. Jesus sat in the corner with his back resting against the cool stone wall. He looked so tired. In his hands was one of Nathan's mallets. He kept shifting it from one hand to the other. He looked up at me with a weary smile, said, I know you. Yes, Rabbi, I almost knocked you down once, but that was long ago. They call you names, he said, stupid and slow and a fool. As he spoke those words, I could see on his face the pain hearing them all these years had caused me. But you're not stupid, Yoshev, Jesus gently said. Within your grasp this very night is all the wisdom of God. With that, he dropped the mallet and grasped my hand. Never let them call you slow, Joshua. Wisdom is yours. Truth. Do you believe this, he asked. Lord, said I, I am not, not a man of words. What does wisdom have to do, do with a fool like me? A tear ran down Jesus' face. You are wiser than you know. With that, he rested himself against the wall. His voice was darker as he spoke. This might be the last time we see each other, my friend. I'm on my way to Jerusalem. When I heard Jesus call me friend, something moved inside me. I, I realized that of all the names I had been called, no one had ever called me by that name. I would like to see you again, Jesus. My friend, I stuttered, embarrassed at my words. I thought of running out that very moment. Is that really what you want, Jesus said? That is all I desire, Lord. Then you, sh you shall have all you desire. The next morning I woke to Nathan the carpenter, trying to rouse me. Jesus and his disciples were gone. Yoshev, what are you doing, he asked. What is that in your hand? I looked, and there in my hand was the carpenter's mallet Jesus had been holding the night before.
This, this is, I think, as a teenager, was one of my earliest sort of glimpses into who Jesus was. And it's from a totally made-up story. But it has a story that rings of truth, doesn't it? And it strikes me that Jesus was, is, is the healer that into, helps us integrate ourselves to, to know what it is to shun the limelight, to know what it is to give up pride, but also to know that we are known and loved by him. There's a, there's a little excerpt from The Lord of the Rings after the Battle of the Pelennor Fields when um, they're in the Houses of Healing in, in Minas Tirith. And uh, Gandalf, the wizard, is running between people trying to cure them. And we get a, a, another vision of Jesus in the person of Aragorn. Gandalf went from one to the other full of care and was told all that the watchers could hear. And so the day passed while the great battle outside went on with shifting hopes and strange tidings. And still Gandalf waited and watched and did not go forth till at last the red sunset filled all the sky and the light through the windows fell on the gray faces of the sick. Then it seemed to those who stood by that in the glow the faces flushed softly as with health returning, but it was only a mockery of hope. Then an old wife, Yorith, the eldest of the women who served in that house, looking on the fair face of Faramir, wept for all the people loved him. And she said, alas, if he should die, would that there were kings in Gondor, as there were once upon a time, they say. For it is said in old lore, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And so the rightful king could ever be known. And Gandalf, who stood by, said, men may long remember your words, Yorith, for there is hope in them. Maybe a king has indeed returned to Gondor. Or have you not heard the strange tidings that have come to the city? Oh, thank you, Peter. Yeah, I'm, I've, I've moved on to Tolkien now. <laughs> and so Gandalf flees the houses of healing to find Aragorn outside the city in council with Eomer, who is the new king of the Rohimin, and Imrahil, who is a duke related to, um, to the uh, steward of the city. Um, but Aragorn, and they decided they will go in, but Aramor said, but um, Aragorn said, um, behold, uh, where am I? <laughs> About entering the city without being revealed as king, Aragorn said, I deem the time unripe. I have no mind for strife except with our enemy and his servants. And the prince Imrahil said, your words, Lord, are wise. If one who is a kinsman of the Lord Denethor may counsel you in this matter, he is strong-willed and proud, but old, and his mood has been strange since his son was stricken down. Yet I would not have you remain like a beggar at the door. Not a beggar, said Aragorn, say a captain of the rangers, who are unused to cities and houses of stone. And he commanded that his banner should be furled. And he did off the star of the North Kingdom and gave it to the keeping of the sons of Elrond. And this is another sort of picture of, of, of Jesus as king who hides himself in a way to come into, to, into the city, into us, to bring us healing. Um, 
sort of reminds me of the passage from Philippians 2, you know, who was in the, in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took you on the form of a servant, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. I can't, I can't stop it there. I have to f- finish it. Therefore, God highly exalted him and raised him so that at the name of Jesus, every knee on heaven and on earth and below the earth should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And now back to the painting. That's not the one I want. That's the one I want. This is uh, from an artist uh, who, who's in, from Sackville, New Brunswick. His name is Dan Steves. And he did a whole series of these paint. Of, they're actually not paintings, they're etchings on a plate that he's uh, done prints off of, of old houses in the Maritimes um, that are a little dilapidated, empty, vacant, but there's a white sheet in them, and the sheet is representing Christ. And this, this is what he writes about this one, paint, uh, this one piece. How can we find any hope in despair, in situations that have gone beyond any turning point? A house like a life once stood high on a hill, sturdy and stalwart, Here, communication and communion were commonplace. Our own experiences can make us feel lost. Destroying us from within like dry rot destroys the life of a house. And yet Dietrich Bonhoeffer, from his prison cell, wrote of the message of the Christmas story, of how it brings hope in the time of despair, light in darkness, and succor in abandonment. And that's the name of this, this piece of... Uh, piece of art. Um, and and I, I've always found it very beautiful that um, sometimes when I'm feeling at my lowest, I can look at this and I'm reminded of how Christ is still there in the midst and he's bringing hope to me. And my final reading today, you know, when I was right, we used to have to do academic papers. My, uh, the people who had to mark them always hated how many, how long my quotes were. Um, this is from uh, the book, The Shape of Liturgy by Dom Gregory Dix, who is an Anglican monk in the um, early to mid 20th century, um, definitely of the Anglo-Catholic variety. Um, but he has this wonderful passage, which to me is, is really, I think, what I strive for in the Christian life. To those who know a little of Christian history, probably the most moving of all the reflections it brings is not the thought of the great events and the well-remembered saints, but of those innumerable millions of entirely obscure faithful men and women, everyone with his or her own individual hopes and fear and joys and sorrows and loves and sins and temptations and prayers, once every whit as vivid and alive as mine are now. They have left no slightest trace in the world, not even name, but have passed to God, utterly forgotten by men. Yet each of them once believed and prayed, as I believe. They uh, found it hard and grew slack and sinned and repented and fell again. Each of them worshipped at the Eucharist and found their thoughts wandering and tried again and felt heavy and unresponsive and yet knew, just as really and pathetically as I do these things, there is a little spelled ill carved rustic epitaph of the fourth century from Asia Minor. Here sleeps the blessed Keone, who has found Jerusalem, for she prayed much. Not another word is known of Keone, 
some peasant women who lived in that vanished world of Christian Anatolia. But how lovely if all that should survive after 16 centuries were that one had prayed much, so that the neighbors who saw all one's life were sure one must have found Jerusalem. What did the Sunday Eucharist in her village church every week for a lifetime mean to the blessed Keone? And to the millions like her then, and every year since, the sheer stupendous quantity of the love of God, which this ever-repeated action has drawn from the obscure Christian multitudes through the centuries, is in itself an overwhelming thought. Amen. <laughs>